All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Credentials Buffering Podcast. Uh, you are joined by Matt and our guest, Grant, for uh, this episode. Grant, why don't you go ahead and tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so first off, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I am from Barrington, Illinois, which is a suburb about 45 minutes outside of Chicago. And in the fall, I will be a rising junior at Vanderbilt University studying political science with a goal of receiving my Juris Doctor in Constitutional Law. And a couple of things I'm involved with on campus are College Republicans, Phi Alpha Delta Pre-Law Fraternity, as well as Young Americans for Liberty. And a little background about what my job aspirations are. I hope to run for Congress in the future, first going into law, um, doing, doing a clerkship with a federal judge or something like that. And this summer, I have been working as the Deputy Regional Political Director for the Jeannie Ives Campaign, which is in the 6th Congressional District of Illinois. So she is taking on a Democrat incumbent, Sean Caston, who is further left than AOC. So it'll be interesting to see how that race goes and how if we can flip the district back to red. Okay, great. Thanks, Grant. Um, let's start off with just a little bit of background, too. Uh, have you always been kind of politically active, or has this kind of been a new thing since you uh, started going to school? I think when I really started getting politically active is in the 2016 election, I started following then candidate Trump in the primary. And that's kind of what got me into politics. Just I'm a, I'm a big supporter of President Trump, the way he took on the establishment. So that kind of inspired me to get involved in political activism. And that's made me know that that's what I wanted to major in. Okay. Yeah. I think a lot of people resonate with that feeling as well. It kind of kind of became cool to be political when Trump ran for office. So I think that's definitely influential for a lot of people that are involved in politics now. Um, let's talk a little bit about what made you choose Vanderbilt. Uh, coming from Illinois, were you in a traditionally Democratic-run uh, district? Uh, was that a difficult choice? Did you choose it because it was a little more conservative? Why don't you walk us through that a little bit? Well, originally, I was actually a student. My freshman year of college, I was a student athlete at Washington University in St. Louis. So I played football there. But I tore my ACL multiple times. So that's kind of why I decided to transfer. Not to mention, WashU was incredibly liberal, given the fact that they, they pulled the student body. I think something around 5% of students identified as conservative. Um, so I was in the process of trying to get a Turning Point USA chapter started there. But there's so few conservatives there, it's hard to even build up a coalition. So I decided to transfer after that. Um, and I was between, I was looking at a couple schools, Northwestern, Vanderbilt, but I think being in the South was definitely a positive. Vanderbilt's obviously still liberal, but compared to a lot of other universities, um, it's a better balance. So I would say maybe like 70, 30, 70 liberal, 30 conservative. But yeah, I think I, I like it a lot better than Washington personally. I like being in the South and that's where I want to live when I graduate, hopefully. Okay, great. Yeah, that, that all makes perfect sense to me. Uh, let's talk about how you got involved with some of the political organizations, too. You talked about Trump's campaign being uh, kind of a lightning rod that drew you to politics. Um, was the next step logically just to try and get involved a little bit more on campus? Uh, what did you start out with first? Yeah, so the first thing I started with is I just started kind of doing my own research, reading a lot of um, conservative books, books by Mark Levin, Sean Hannity, kind of helped me shape my conservative ideology but originally I joined the college Republicans at WashU not a very big organization given how liberal the school is and kind of the way that that was disorganized and not running very smoothly in my opinion kind of made me want to get involved full-time and really create something and try to make a difference try to preach the conservative viewpoint to 
students who are overwhelmingly leftists nowadays at universities. Okay, great. Um, let's talk about a little compare and contrast from WashU and the college Republicans there to Vanderbilt now. Um, what are kind of the differences, similarities? Yeah, well, I would say Vanderbilt's definitely a lot bigger. I think we have something around 100 members at WashU. We maybe had 15 to 20. I think we're definitely more organized. We meet more often. There's definitely more correspondence. You know, I think at, like, the first event we had at WashU, they had a meeting. You know, we talked about some viewpoints, but other than that, they kind of just frayed out as the semester went on. But at Vanderbilt, there's constantly there's debates with the college Democrats. There's constantly things that we do in Nashville. Uh, we constantly meet and discuss policy. So I think just in terms of the organizational organizational aspect, Vanderbilt's definitely definitely more um, clean cut. Is it same with the Young Americans for Liberty? I'm not a libertarian, but I um, I go to some of their meetings to discuss some of um, our viewpoints because obviously from an economic perspective, I agree with a lot of what they have to say. But definitely just definitely more organized is the biggest difference I would say. Yeah, speaking uh, to the libertarian effect too, this is probably uh, one of the years where there is actually a large following for a third-party candidate. What are your views on that? Potential. Potential, yeah, 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 Matt, whatever. Yeah, I can actually speak to that. Um, And the race I'm working for, for the Genius campaign, there's a third-party candidate as a libertarian who just filed to run. So we're kind of trying to deal with that, I think. I think if you're a libertarian, I think, you know, the libertarian's not going to win the election. You'd be better off voting for a conservative as opposed to taking votes away, um, taking votes away from the conservative and helping out the Democrats. Hopefully people will see that and uh, and vote for one of the two major parties because I don't think having a third party is helping conservatives at all. So you're a third party is a wasted vote kind of guy. Yeah, I, I believe so. I mean, obviously you should vote your conscience. You should vote for what you believe, but I feel like if your vote is not going to impact the election, might as well vote for the candidate who you think actually has a genuine chance of winning. Yeah, well, that's where realism starts to play a little bit of a play a little bit of part, especially in affairs like this. Um, since we have a student from Vanderbilt, you know, um, in Nashville, why don't you talk a little bit about how Vanderbilt University handled the COVID crisis um, throughout the spring and kind of moving through um, the summer? Yeah, so a lot of people think they handled it uh, pretty poorly. I would tend to agree with that. We had actually, Vanderbilt has a very early spring break, so we our first day was around February 28th or something like that. And then when we got back, they we had been in class one day. So that Monday when we had gotten back, they emailed us that night telling us that we had to go home and we had to pack up all our stuff when everyone had paid for all their flights to get back to camp. This. So I ended up staying a couple weeks later, but how they re- how they refunded part of your um, room and board, they based it on when you left campus and when you moved out. So I know there was a lot of people up in arms about that, a couple students trying to sue the school. Uh, but I think overall, with the phase back in, they've been doing a decent job. They're kind of basing it on national government officials, which is not necessarily a good sign, given that Nashville, even though we're in a red state, is a pretty blue city. There's been a lot of, there's been a revert, a lot of um, new cases just because Broadway, all the bars have been open um, and a lot of people weren't wearing masks. So, so there's been a lot more new cases. So Vandy's kind of trying to figure out what they're doing with that right now. But as far as I'm concerned, we're supposed to start August 24th. Uh, I'm going back the 9th because I'm living off campus, but we'll see what happens. Okay, well, yeah, it seems like a lot of schools have definitely taken different approaches to this, but that seems to be, um, across the board, a pretty standard approach um, 
I know George Washington, where I'm going in the fall, has just canceled all online class or in-person classes and on-campus living for the fall about three weeks before people are supposed to move in. So some people are handling it better than ever or better than others. But uh, Grant, let's go ahead and talk about uh, the topic you wanted to discuss today: uh, party demographics. Yeah. So. Well, I was doing some research on, uh, I was looking at a Pew 2017 study, just overall, kind of as a general starter, I saw that the statistics were 37% of registered voters were independent, 33% were Democrats, and 26% were Republicans. And yeah, I think a big part of that is obviously urban areas, highly centralized areas, uh, definitely, obviously, lean more liberal. I see in my home city of Chicago. So I think that can partially explain why more people identify as Democrats. I mean, that's why we have the Electoral College, so you get rid of tyranny of the majority. But I think rural voters, too, even though there's not as many of them, the reasoning why they lean conservative is, you know, they're more religious. They tend to be more interested in social issues. Um, And also on the study I was reading, it talked about how they're more likely to be self-employed and not rely on the government uh, for solutions. So I think that kind of explains how the breakdown goes. I think even in even in European countries all over, it seems to be the general general trend that more rural voters tend to be a lot more conservative than those who live in the city. I mean, we're seeing that right now with all the protests. Yeah, as a generalization, I definitely think that would be true. Let's discuss a little bit about the 2016 election and the demographics that played a role in that. So what we're kind of looking at for this election was a large, um, you know, a lot of people say the silent majority But a lot of people that you just don't hear about, especially in these latest polls that have come out, uh, you know, with Trump versus Biden. And what do you think really played a part in having uh, to sway that middle vote during the 2016 election? I think how President Trump framed framed it was good. Just he said, what do you have to lose? You know, it it had become hard before the Tea Party came out of the scene before President Trump run to even differentiate some of the policies between Republicans and Democrats in Washington. You know, they're all part of the they're all part of the elitist class. They all do what's good for them, but don't realize that they work for their constituents. So I think the way Trump framed the argument, talking about the forgotten men and women of America, this new conservative populist movement is really what what, what swung the voters. And like you said, the South majority was was huge for that. A lot of people maybe don't want to admit that they're voting for Trump because of how some of their friends, how some of their family might react. But at the end of the day, they know economic or obviously before the COVID-19 crisis, we had the best economy we've ever had. And I think knowing that Trump was a businessman, that he was a political outsider, explains why a lot of people voted for him, even if they didn't want to admit it. Okay, yeah, definitely good reasoning there. And I would have to agree. Let's speak a little bit to the demographics moving into this next election. Now, you know, not publicly, or I guess publicly in some manners, um, but for quite a bit, the black vote, you know, has obviously been traditional Democrat and very, very heavily. I believe 80% or so um, is, you know, to probably probably right around there. Um, do you think Trump's doing anything to sway those votes moving into this election cycle in any meaningful way? Or do you think that's really going to be narrowed down to those places where it's not going to make um, much of a difference because they're so traditional blue? I think Trump, um, the mainstream media is not going to say it, but I think Trump will get a lot of black votes uh, this election. I think that kind of plays into the silent majority. As I said earlier, how we framed it in the 2016 election was what do you have to lose? But you're seeing, you're definitely seeing in some of these polls a big rise in support 
support uh, Trump among the black community. He's done more for the black community in four years than Obama did in eight years. You know, criminal justice reform, record funding for historically black colleges and universities, and and you know, just and same with Ben Carson and housing and urban development. I think they're doing a lot more for the black community than was done before. So I think, I think overall, I think he's going to get a lot more black votes than a lot of people realize. Maybe some black people won't want to admit that they're voting for him, but I think the way he's framing is, is you don't want to be reliant. You know, I think when Democrats play into these identity politics, what they don't understand is they claim it's virtuous, but what I really see is I see it as racism. The very definition of racism is treating someone different because of their skin color, and that's exactly what they do. Republicans, on the other hand, want to be colorblind and give everyone the opportunities, not looking at color, just giving everyone economic opportunities. You know, these, these urbanized areas that a lot of these minorities live in, Asian Americans and um, African Americans as well, as well as Hispanics, um, they, Democrats kind of want to keep them in this never-ending cycle of poverty, keep them on government welfare. Republicans want to get them over the stretch, over the ladder with the booming economy, which I think President Trump framing it that way is, um, is very strategic. And I think it's going to help him, especially running against Joe Biden who insults black voters when he says, you ain't black if you don't vote for me. I think that's regardless of what political, what side of the political aisle you're on, I think that's extremely offensive, saying that you can't think for yourself just because of your skin color, and that's become the mainstream Democratic Party. It's no longer the party of JFK or even Obama. It's the party of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna. It seems like some reluctance for people to associate with the Republican Party based on minor ethnicity lines. Do you, this is kind of a question, but do you feel like a lot of that is just with the branding of the Republican Party? Do you think that could circumvent and identify as Republican? Well, I think Republicans, what they need to do is they need to come in their history they're the party of Lincoln, they're the party that, which is statistically false. Um, the South didn't turn red until 1994. But the fact of the matter is, I think identity politics is really just the next phase of slavery, in my opinion. I think the Democratic Party is framing, is framing everything in terms of race and saying, if you're black, you have to vote for us. If you're, if you're an immigrant, you have to vote for us. The history of racism as it goes into American politics is all on the Democratic Party. It is not on the Republican Party. I think if Republicans can preach on that and preach more from the economic perspective and get results as President Trump has for the black community, I think they will be able to get a lot more minority votes if they focus on the economic aspect of things and get people get people better off than they were before, as Trump has done in the after the twenty sixteen election. Well, with Trump focusing so much on criminal reform too, um, criminal justice reform, you know, we saw even, you know, kind of surprisingly that, um, you know, the Super Bowl ads that Trump published were about criminal justice reform. And, you know, he's probably playing to, he has his traditional base solidified. And uh, I think he's been chipping away at this kind of minority populace of America for quite a while where now the Democrats are really in a position where their traditional base is uh, starting to fade away in a few circumstances. And, you know, the the Biden comment, you know, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black, you know, is obviously extremely offensive. But I think more minorities are having trouble associating just with the party in general. Yeah, I think to speak on that, 
Um, if if Democrats lose these minority coalitions, they're never going to win an election, and they know that. If they lose more of the black vote, if they lose more of the Hispanic vote, of the Asian American Asian American vote, they're not going to win elections. Which is exactly why I believe they need to play into identity politics to try to co-opt these minority groups and retain them. Because if they go for the Republican Party, it's over. Uh, the Republicans win pretty much every election. And I think that's the biggest thing for Republicans now, I believe, is to get those voters and make an argument and reach out to them and explain why they will make them better off. What has the Democratic Party done to all these low-income uh, low income groups in major cities? Every single major city is run by leftist mayor. It's with minor exceptions in um, more red states. If you look at New York, you look at Chicago, you look at L.A., look at all the violence there. If if that's such an issue and the left talks about all the violence there and how it's a big issue, the first people you should look to are the Democrats because there's the people who have been running those cities for decades. Well, let's look at something else. Uh, let's look at how the stimulus checks may play into kind of that minority uh, populace as well. So, you know, Democrats, obviously the party of social or socialist systems and, uh, you know, socialist forms of, you know, not just government, but, you know, governing systems. So do you think, um, you know, the Republicans really are the ones who headed that stimulus check, uh, the first one, and the Democrats were the ones who, um, you know, really pushed back against it and made it difficult for a lot of people, uh, you know, elongated that process. And I think that's something that a lot of people recognize. So, you know, one of the traditional benefits of having a very strong state or, you know, moving for those socialist programs is you get to hand out free money to people. Do y'all think um, this latest round of stimulus checks too plays a big role in what the policies the Democrats are pushing to try and appeal uh, to that base as well, that minority base or, you know, that far left base where I know Joe Biden has come out with some very large plans um, as far as, uh, you know, extremely large and expensive packages. Do you think that's kind of in a response to this latest uh, stimulus check? Yeah, I think it could be, you know, like I said, I think with the stimulus stimulus check, I'm not a, I'm not a big government spending guy, but I think it's giving money back to the taxpayers that the government took from them in the first place. But all these socialist programs, you know, Medicare for all, free college, people don't realize that it's not free, it's coming out of their pockets. But, you know, speaking on speaking on Joe Biden, I think the biggest myth of this entire election cycle is that He's a moderate because he's pretty much just co-opted Bernie Sanders' platform. I don't know. Maybe he himself is not that far left, but he wants to appease his base. You know, I was reading an article the other day talking about how he wants to get rid of shareholders and companies. And the, as the classic socialist saying goes, have the workers own the means of production. Yeah. That's about as far left as you can get. So I, I think with the stimulus checks, I think they might help Republicans getting some of these voters that traditionally vote Democratic. But... Overall, I'm not. I think the best the best plan of action would just be to open the economy with social distancing and protect the most vulnerable. That'd be better than any stimulus check and any government handout. Well, I would have to agree as well. Uh, but we also have to realize too, we're dealing with a very interesting system this election cycle, um, where you know it wasn't the moderation that we saw ten years ago or twelve years ago in elections. It wasn't. This guy is slightly blue leaning. This guy is slightly right leaning. But, at, you know, at the end of the day, the policies are going to slightly play to one side or the other. Now we're looking at a dramatic, you know, a dramatic difference. You know, it's, it's all the way right or all the way left as a lot of people see it. And 
Um, I think it's a lot less appealing on the left's end, especially what's been going on. I don't think the Black Lives Matter movement, especially lately, has done much to solidify that minority base. And that might, you know, in a lot of places, it's the minorities that are getting hurt by these riots. So when the left kind of plays into that narrative, I don't think it's helping anybody, especially not on their side. Yeah, just speaking on Black Lives Matter, um, uh, yeah, like, like you said, minorities are getting hurt. A lot of the low income areas, a lot of the a lot of the business, black businesses are being destroyed. Do Black Lives Matter? Of course. Do All Lives Matter? Of course. The problems with Black Lives Matter as a political movement is that it's a neo-Marxist organization who only cares about some black lives. What about the? What about all the babies that get, get killed every year? The black babies that get killed by Planned Parenthood. What about the black black on black violence in cities like Chicago, which I'm seeing now with Lori Lightfoot? What are they doing to help that? Do those lives matter? Because you don't really see them talking about that. You just see them going out. Um, trying to raise money for the DNC. You know, when you donate Black Lives Matter, it goes straight to Act Blue Super PAC, which funnels straight to the DNC. So clearly, it should be a non-political issue. But the problem with the movement is that it's become something way different than, I don't know what the original intention was, but what it's become is just harmful to everyone. It's especially Black black voters and Black people. I feel like it's more it's doing more harm than it's doing good for them. Well, when we, see, when we see people, you know, and obviously this has been going on in traditionally Democratic strongholds, uh, Chicago, you know, Atlanta, as far as an urban vote goes, do you think a lot of people are starting to reexamine that? Because, um, you know, not necessarily, I mean, I don't know if these rioters go out and vote per se, but do you think a lot of the citizens looking around, uh, maybe not specifically minorities either, but, you know, especially looking around kind of the damage they're seeing and really starting to reevaluate who they're going to vote for. Yeah, I think pretty much after these riots, you're seeing the real question is, do you want law and order or do you want tyranny? I was reading an article the other day about someone in Portland, a protester who went to their first protest. And after that, they said, I can't vote for the left after this because what are they doing to stop this? I think a lot of people are looking at the damage and saying, what is this producing? Should peaceful protesting? No problem. That's your constitutional right. You should be able to do that, protest whatever you want. But destroying things is not protesting. And regardless of how the left tries to frame it and say that these are peaceful protests, the fact of the matter is they aren't. Just look at Portland. I don't think there's anything peaceful about that. So I think all these riots in the end are are going to help the Republicans with people realizing just how far left everything has gone, especially with Antifa. A lot of people protesting too. It's interesting because you'll see African-American cops being screamed at by young white protesters screaming Black Lives Matter at the cops and calling those African-American cops racists, which doesn't make much sense to me. So I think overall, uh, it'll definitely end up helping the Republicans in the long run. Um, President Trump deploying federal troops to create law and order. I strongly agree with that decision. You know, a lot of the leftist mayors and governors don't. But if they're not doing anything to help, then what other choice do we have? And I mean, the thing we really need to think about this election cycle, too, is, you know, we can think about the traditional base the left has. And let's say, you know, a lot of those core values are probably being chipped away. But, you know, there's not much. It doesn't if you turn on the news, there's no middle anymore. When you actually head out to vote, there's a lot of people still in the middle. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of people, and it's only solidifying that the Republican Party is the party of uh, law and order. And I think that's a lot easier for people to hang on to that are in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. I would have to agree with that. I think if you're in the middle, even if you don't like Trump, even if you hate Trump, you have to look 
at the other candidates. Joe Biden, he's basically a mouthpiece for the Democratic Party. I think whoever is vice president, as I read an article today saying that they think it might be Kamala Harris, the party has moved so far left that the policy, if you looked at those policy, at their policy platform about 10 years ago, you would laugh and say there's no way that that's ever going to happen. But Joe Biden, I, I know he's saying he might not want to debate Trump, um, which obviously is probably his interest. I think it would be a bloodbath baited Trump. But I, he, when he doesn't have someone, when he doesn't have campaign and staff in his ear telling him what to say and what to do, even though he can't, you know, put together a coherent sentence anyways, I think it's going to be an issue. And when they see those two debating, I think that's really going to bump Trump, Trump up in the polls. Not that I really, I don't really tend to believe the polls anyways. I mean, I didn't in 2016 and the solid majority came through. I think that's exactly what's going to happen election as well. Well, let's talk about the debates for just a second, too, because I think they have actually planned some. I think if I read correctly today, one was just moved out of Notre Dame. Notre Dame was originally going to host it, and uh, they moved it. I didn't actually see why. Um, but I think Joe Biden's campaign was originally saying they would not debate Trump unless he, A, released his taxes, and B, had independent fact-checkers there during the debate to, I guess, instantaneously check every statement he made. So I, I think that's, I agree with you. If it was a debate, I'd love to see it. You know who I'd really love to see? Anybody but Joe Biden debate Donald Trump, because he's excellent in the debate. I mean, as we all saw in 2016. And I'd, I'd really love to see that circumstance. I don't think most people are going to be able to stomach, you know, Joe Biden, when we first saw him, we got to remember too, when they were having the Democratic primary, he was a distant fourth or fifth for the longest time and then right. all of us and it was because he couldn't debate he'd just go up there and say something incoherent and then people would test him on it or you know push him on it and he wouldn't have anything to push back with all of a sudden you know he's the primary candidate out of nowhere so i think that also if we're talking about another minority here or another base um let's talk about how the bernie bros may kind of face themselves this election uh when you know Joe Biden, I mean, uh, Bernie's actually been criticizing Joe Biden and everything that's come out, you know, a lot of the Biden or a lot of the Bernie supporters feel like they were robbed for a candidate seat in um, 2016. They felt like it was pulled out from under their rugs by Hillary Clinton. And then now it looks like a really similar situa situation's happening. Um, do you think just out of spite to the DNC that they may not even cast a ballot with the base yeah. that, you know, that they were really heavily relying on? I think it's a possibility for sure. I mean, there's no question that in 2016, the DNC pretty much, uh, pretty much stole the vote from, stole the vote from Bernie Sanders. I think what Biden is trying to do, obviously, is trying to reach out to the Bernie Sanders supporters, as you've seen, because he's moving further and further to the left, trying to adopt some of Bernie's uh, policy platform. But you know, as I saw in an article the other day, a Bernie Sanders staffer compared voting to Joe Biden as eating a plate of crap. So it's, um, I think they would maybe do a write-in ballot, maybe even write-in Bernie or just not vote. Because obviously the Bernie people aren't going to vote for Trump. But I think they are so against the DNC now that you might see that ending up, help, you might see the Bernie supporters ending up helping Trump because they're not willing to vote for Joe Biden because of his association with the DNC. Yeah, I'd have to agree. And I think that's going to be one of the more interesting demographics to look at um, during this election cycle as well. Um, 
if we would have had the election right after uh, Joe Biden won the primary nomination and Bernie dropped out, I think not a single Bernie supporter would have gone out and voted for Joe Biden, or at least it would be extremely minuscule. Now, I think some of the effects are starting to wear off, but I think they still feel robbed where you have a super energetic base. And that's what I would have loved to see. You know, that Bernie base, I don't agree with it, but they are as energetic and riled up as the Trump base. So I, I think a lot of people who feel like, you know, they had their candidate, they were energized about him, they were out there, big grassroots movement, out there supporting, campaigning, doing whatever, whatever they can for Bernie, and then having it robbed from them again, I think they've just lost a lot of that enthusiasm for this election cycle. Yeah, and just to speak on that, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, obviously Bernie's and Trump's policy platforms are completely different, but they have a lot in common as well. I mean, they're both populists. Bernie's obviously left-wing populism, Trump right-wing populism, but they agree on a lot of stuff, such as lowering the cost of prescription medication. Um, they kind of frame their argument as the common man, and I, they're both grassroots campaigns, and I think that's why Bernie garnered so much support. I think he's he's obviously super far left, but in terms of his rhetoric, I think he's he's pretty comparable to Trump just on the different end of the political spectrum. And I think that's why you've seen how energetic his base has been. You haven't seen much support for Joe Biden. I think the campaign that some Democrats are running nowadays is saying settle for Biden. Like you may not like him, but you have to vote for him. And I don't think that's, that's definitely not the saying of a winning campaign, in my opinion. I would have to agree. And we got to remember too, Bernie left, Bernie was extremely far left. Um, you know, four years ago or three years ago. But now when you looked up on the Democratic primary debate stage, he's moderate compared to everyone else. Just yeah. just as moderate. I mean, we had universal income proposals. We had a lot of stuff on the table, which would have been unfathomable, um, you know, three years ago, four years ago. Yeah, you have the moderator in the Democratic debate. Raise your hand if you're uh, if you would provide free health care to illegal immigrants. Every single person on that stage raised their hand. And it's, it's the Democratic Party has become a joke of its former self. At least before, they believed in capitalism. Obviously, they believed in Keynesian economics, which I disagree with. But at least they believed in the American way. Now, what we're being taught and in universities and just what, what is being reiterated is that America is a fundamentally racist country built on racist ideals. And I think every, every Democrat tends to believe that now. And, you know, I think the biggest thing that conservatives need to do is refute that. We need to stay true to the principles of our founding, and we need to continue to reiterate that America, as President Trump said in his State of the Union, that America will never be a socialist country. We're never going to let it happen. Um, okay, let's talk about the upcoming RNC convention, because we were just speaking about that. Trump moved it uh, from Florida to North Carolina. Do you think that's another appeal um, as far as to a different demographic? Uh, to where, you know, Florida, he was looking like he may not, he may lose that state and it may not be quite as much support, um, according to the latest polling. Yeah, well, I know the Trump campaign in 2016 was saying we can't win without Florida. It was a must-have swing state. Um, well, I know, obviously, they canceled a lot of the in-person events in Jacksonville, but I think that's definitely smart to appeal appeal to the base, definitely to have it in a swing state um, where you might be able to attract more supporters. So I think that was definitely a strategic move even though um, they had to cancel it. But I think at the end of the day, um, people will be watching the speeches at the Republican convention from home. The majority of people watch it from home anyways. 
So I think um, I think it might not make a huge difference, but it also brings revenue into the city of Jacksonville. And Jacksonville, for being a big city, is fairly conservative. So I think it was overall a smart move. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, I think they announced they just moved it to North Carolina, if I'm not mistaken. So that'll be a definitely yeah. a different situation for them, but I think still beneficial. Um, what do you think the main Democratic Party is trying to get out of the next few months? Where do you think their priorities are? Um, what you know, demographics? What group of people? Who are they trying to appeal to? Well, I think their main their main thing they want to do right now is probably just keep Joe. Joe Biden hidden in his basement, so we can't say anything that's going to screw up. Um, that's going to screw up the election for them. I think their biggest thing is just to run on. Probably their biggest thing to run on is railing against Trump for his supposed bad COVID response. Um, call Republicans racist. Call Trump racist. Uh, pretty much just feed into the Black Lives Matter movement. But I think their main group. I think the biggest thing for the Democratic Party is they just need to retain their retain their core supporters retain the black vote, retain the minority vote. That's their biggest thing, because I think they all know if they lose that vote, they're in bad shape. I think that's a big part of the reason that Joe Biden is most likely going to bring Kamala Harris on as his vice president to appeal to that demographic. So, yeah, I think their biggest thing is pretty much just probably keeping the status quo, not doing anything to, uh, not doing anything to self-destruct. I think they're... I think COVID and the Black Lives Black Lives Matter, I think, is going to end up hurting them. But I think COVID in the long run uh, might help them as well. But that's tough to say because you could look at both sides of the coin. You can see all the, the tyrannical leaders like Governor Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. Yeah, great example. Great example. Yeah, so I think, I don't know, it's, it's, it's tough to say. I, I really... I think Trump will win, and I think Republicans will come out on top in 2020, but it is really tough to say there's so many moving pieces, and who, who knows what's going to happen in the days leading up to the election. We still have a while. There's still a lot to happen, so who knows? Yeah, I'd have to agree. Uh, Matt, do you have any questions? Uh, no, no more questions for me. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, I think, in, I mean, we have to remember how this year kind of played out, too. Uh, let's talk pre-COVID. You know, we had a few Democratic investigations into Russia and et cetera, et cetera, that, are, you know, never really panned out, which was the biggest thing that they're grasping at. And they're grasping at straws, you know, throughout this. So pre-COVID, we're looking at a booming economy. Uh, we're looking at a lot of people that are generally in great circumstances. And I mean, we're seeing something unprecedented here for sure. Uh, I mean, nobody in the last hundred years or so has really had this kind of experience in an election and this kind of amount that social media has played into it. So we've seen a lot of flip-flopping. Um, before COVID, I think we're in a great circumstance. Trump's appealing to everybody or quite a, lot, quite a lot people more than, you know, just the traditional Republican base. We get hit with COVID and then that's kind of a downturn. You know, it takes the economy with it. And we're looking at a circumstance that a lot of people, you know, can view as a negative and his handling of it, which ultimately I think it's still been handled appropriately and been handled pretty well. Um, if it were up to me, you know, generally speaking, I would have opened things back up and let it play out. Um, you know, do I want people to die? Of course not. It, but I mean, if you look at the statistics on it, I, I think it's a pretty obvious choice for me. Now we move in, you know, so the latest is kind of a negative on Trump. If we view COVID that way, which I think quite a few people do, 
And then we move in kind of to the latest one, which is Black Lives Matter, which I think is a positive for Trump and has really solidified his base. And maybe those people in the middle that don't don't agree with the rioting or especially the rioting going on in their town uh, and a lot of those, you know, Democratic stronghold areas. And I think that's something that the Republican Party can stand behind, um, you know, to people in the middle. Yeah, I think Trump with in his campaign staff, what they need to speak on is we re- rebuilt this economy once after Obama. We can rebuild it again after COVID. I think like you, you said with the Black Lives Matter helping him, I, I, you see like 100 police or uh, 100 police security organizations are pulling out because they don't want to do security for the uh, uh, yes i saw that as well democratic national convention um because that's what happens when you have anti-police rhetoric and then police unions are endorsing trump when previously they have endorsed obama both of his terms so i think you're really seeing that uh really seeing that help him i think trump's biggest thing he needs to run on is his record pre-covid and it shows that he can rebuild an economy and that he can do it again because the economy is definitely his biggest selling point, I would say. So he needs to keep speaking on that for sure. And a lot of people pre-COVID, too, when the economy was just, you know, absolutely skyrocketing, it was easy for, you know, to misquote Trump or, you know, how he speaks or whatever to say, hey, Trump's an idiot, but we're making tons of money. Everybody is. It's great. So I think that's something that universally appeals to most people too. You know, like he can get up there and say whatever he wants, but when we look at the numbers, it's nothing but a positive. Yeah, you know, a lot of people don't like the way he talks. They don't like the way he tweets. You know, obviously, sometimes I'll see tweets, something he says, say, why would you say that? Sometimes you just need to stop talking, but I'm a policy guy. If the policy's working, that's what most is most important to me. But at the end of the day, I think how candid he is. He doesn't have a filter. He's not politically correct. I think that's a big part of the reason a lot of people love him. He's willing to say what he's going to say for better or for worse. I think people respect that. I think he's the most, one of the most transparent politicians we've ever seen. Um, we've ever seen. So I think if, I think he needs to stick to his guns. I don't, I, if he changes, I think that's going to hurt him. So I think he needs to keep doing what he's doing. Uh, keep running on his record and keep, keep the enthusiasm, keep tweeting. I think it's going to help him. Obviously there's some things he shouldn't be, Tweeting, you know, sometimes you wish like stuff like the NASCAR thing with Bubba Wallace. Some probably shouldn't get involved in that. You just, there's no need to talk about it. But at the end of the day, I think Twitter and his style is doing more good for him than bad. For you, sure. you never, uh, you never have to guess what he's thinking, which I think appeals to a lot of people. Uh, especially, you know, you come from, you know, you look at the 2016 uh, race with someone like Hillary, which you know is a very cold, calculated, uh, you know, political agent. You know, everything's done behind back doors. Everything's done, you know, um, not in the light of day. So I think it was very refreshing from coming from that traditional look. And that's what I have to agree appealed to a lot of people on Trump. So moving forward, besides, you know, just keep being himself, what do you think he can do to gain ground in the upcoming months? I think definitely drawing on the pointless investigation, showing the obstructive nature of the Democrats. I think that it's going to be tough. You know, I think Obama should be subpoenaed. I doubt that's going to happen before the election just for his role and role in the Steele dossier and spying on the Trump campaign, spying on Carter Page. But I think a lot of those operatives in the deep state and the FBI need to be subpoenaed. And I think Attorney General Barr is is doing a good job looking into that with the investigation. But I actually just finished reading a book on this. You know, one of the things I think he needs to draw on is that it was the Democrats who colluded with Russia, it wasn't the Republicans. You know, Christopher Steele through Fusion GPS 
He's going getting opposition research from Russian operatives and the Russian government to create a phony dossier and somehow getting a FISA warrant through that, even though there was nothing to prove anything and there was true. So there was obviously corruption high in the government. I think Trump's saying he wants to give the government back to the people, be, be the common man, be the populist, the populist president he is. I think drawing on the pointless investigations and all the politicians, he, you know, he always says, they're not after me, they're after you. So I think he keeps that populist rhetoric and kind of talks about and uses the investigations and the impeachment trials and everything. And to, just as an example of how, of how, of how corrupt the government really is nowadays, the deep state, I think that's going to help them a lot more too. Okay. Let's touch on uh, just one more thing. We're coming up pretty close to an hour. So we'll touch on this. Let's talk about the latest polling. Now, what we learned in the 2016 election was, I mean, you can call it whatever you want, improper polling or, you know, blatant criminality in reporting it. Uh, but what we saw was the election did not represent the polling where I think Hillary Clinton was in a you know 15 point lead or something ridiculous going into it. So you see a lot of people pushing these polls that show Trump majorly behind in a lot of places. And I think it's for the most part to try and reinforce that you know, vote for the winner, Joe Biden, you know, he's he's going to win. And I think it's to try and kind of excite the base that's been losing a lot of steam. So do you think there's any validity in these polls? Do you think any of this is going to reflect itself on the election? And uh, if not, you know, what do you think people can do to get some of that accurate reporting on stuff like that? You know, I've, I've never a big fan of polls. I think, you know, we learned about this in my political science classes. It's all about social desirability bias, what people say to a reporter, what they say in front of people is not necessarily how they're going to vote. They want to say what people are going to hear. You know, maybe if they're around friends or family who say, oh, Trump's a racist, Trump's a misogynist, all that stuff, they're not, and they like Trump and they're going to vote for him, they might say, oh, I'm undecided. Oh, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden or I'm going to vote for a third party candidate. I, I genuinely don't believe in the validity of these polls. I think the silent majority is going to be the biggest thing. That's what helped Trump in 2016 is going to help him now. And I really think among minority groups that his that his electoral share is going to increase substantially, uh, based on what I've seen and just based on his record of how he's run economically. I think the biggest thing is, like I said before, he just needs to run run on the economy. Joe Biden has been in government for forty years. He hasn't passed any signature legislation. What has he done? If he was going to do anything monumental in government, he would have done it by now. But he hasn't. Trump's done more in in three and a half years than Biden has done in 40 in government. So I think that's his um, biggest selling point. And the silent majority will win again. I wholeheartedly believe that. I'd have to agree with you there. Um, Let's go ahead and start wrapping things up. Um, Matt, do you have any final thoughts for us? I'm wondering what the feasibility we might see if Joe Biden won't debate, if we'll see a Trump-Kanye debate. That would be a lot cooler for sure. Aside from that observation, no, I don't have too much to ask. Okay, Grant, why don't you give the listeners uh, some final thoughts? Yeah, so just overall, um, you know, as I've been saying, I think the 2020 election is about more government or more freedom. I think this is the most important election in a really long time. We've never seen the Democratic Party be this far left. And I think it's going to be a really scary time in America. You're getting a sneak peek now, what's happening on the streets of major cities, what in America will be like run by liberal far left socialists. So I think regardless, if you don't like Trump, I think you really need to think, what do I, am I better off before COVID? Was I better off than I was before? Because if you look at every statistic, 
You can't find one that is worse off, inter- economically speaking, under President Trump. Record low black unemployment, record low his, um, Hispanic unemployment, historic tax cuts, most federal judges ever appointed to the Supreme Court. I mean, you could go on and on his, his list of accomplishments, and I think that's the biggest thing people need to look at. Worry about policy, not rhetoric. I think that's the most important thing that's going to help our nation. I'd have to agree. Thank you, Grant. Um, what I'd like to end on is when we're looking at party demographics, I think the most important thing to keep in mind from an objective viewpoint moving forward is the conservative Trump base, which is you have to keep in mind, has been built around Trump and has brought that silent majority out. Um, I think in a lot of young people, it's become a lot cooler to vote for Trump because he's a political lightning rod. Uh, like Grant spoke earlier, he got involved off the 2016 campaign. So everything that happened has been happening this last year. I think if you're a Trump fan, you love how he handled it. If you're way, way far left, you know, obviously you're on the, you know, opposition on trying to bring him down and, you know, that won't change. But I think what's really starting to be blurred is that in the middle line, I don't think anything negative for that independent group has happened this year. Um, as far that would draw them toward the Democratic Party. I think if anything, it would only draw them toward the Republican Party. So despite what we see in the polls, I think the Republican Party is still going to be gaining a lot of ground moving into this election. And there's nothing been, there's really been nothing to throw that momentum off. So that's what I'd like to end with. Uh, this is the Credentials Buffering Podcast. Grant, thanks for being on. We'd uh, love to have you back on. Yeah, really appreciate it.